0: Hi, I'm Kaylee Moore. And I'm Emma Samasco.
1: Welcome to Freelance Writing Coach, your go-to podcast for building a freelance writing business. In each
0: 20-minute episode, we'll do a deep dive into one area of business with the hope that our insights as successful freelance writers will educate and inspire you.
1: Automatic Evergreen, a fully managed newsletter service, that uses your existing content and one-to-one interviews to develop fresh content for a weekly email newsletter. Their team of experts creates the landing page, newsletter copy, and template. They even upload, format, and schedule the email so you never need to log into the email provider. Their goal is to provide a well-written, cash-flowing, on-time newsletter every single week that requires little to no time from you. Schedule a free discovery call today at yourweekly.email ever heard test your marketing but have no idea how to do that social google cold pitches newsletters marketing can be an exhausting grind what if you knew how to choose the best channels for your business growth trackers is a membership for creative business owners who want to stay booked with less energy take charge of your leads when you learn how to find your get booked formula become a growth tracker at supereasydigitalcom easy growth trackers use Code full time freelance for 5% off your membership. What happens when you have a client or
0: editor who has standards that are just sky high in the air? How do you know if that editor is being reasonable with their expectations or if? their expectations are just too high and and they don't make a lot of sense. So in this episode, we want to get into how you can rise to the occasion when an editor's expectations are sky high and how you kind of know that's the case versus someone just being like really, really nitpicky. So Kaylee, I'd love maybe if you could start by talking about your experience working with editors that have really, really high standards and what that's been like for you.
1: Yeah. So some of the toughest editors that I've worked with have helped me produce some of the pieces that I'm really most proud of even 10 years in. And I think the reason for this is they push you to take something that was probably pretty good to start with to that next quality level of this is really, really great. And it's going to be good for a long time. It's entertaining to read. People are going to reference it as an example of like, here's the bar as far as quality goes. It's funny. It's engaging. And that is a lot of work. It's usually a very, very intensive editing process with a lot of back and forth. It's not your standard. I'll give you one round of edits included with my rates. This is very much like a collaborative ongoing process. And I think I really appreciate when I find an editor who works in that way because they, they don't ju- they're not just satisfied with, well, here's what I gave you. It's good enough. Let's run with it. They really want to take it to that next level and you learn a lot in the process of getting that feedback of seeing kind of how the editor is poking holes in things pushing you to add more context more details more examples and it can be really intimidating if you're not prepared for that going in and you open up your google doc and you see all of these notes and comments and edits and suggestions that can feel super overwhelming and i know that anytime i get that type of document back i my instant knee jerk reaction is oh my gosh I've done a bad job, but I think the reality of the situation is they just have a lot of notes on how we can make this better. And it's not saying you did a bad job. It's just saying it needs more, right? We're not we're not quite there yet. And so, I'm curious. I I also want to say I think that there's a like a very small group of people at least in my experience of doing this that actually push writers to do that kind of work and to really raise the bar and have those super high expectations. Um, one for me is working with Joanna Wiebe at Hackers. She's one of the best editors I've ever worked with. And I was turning in a piece to her a few years ago that I was like, wow, this is really good. I'm super proud of this. And then she came back with her notes and edits and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. This makes it so funnier and like more enjoyable to read and interesting and like I, I was just like, my mind was blown. So it was so illuminating to me to have that type of editing experience as the writer. I'm curious for you, have you had that type of experience before and, and how did you feel about it?
0: Yeah, I have before, like we get to me, I just have one question for you, which is how do you kind of square this intensive collaborative editing process with the process that you normally share with clients, which is like, I believe you do one round of revisions, maybe two. I know I typically offer one round. How do you kind of uh, square those things?
1: Yeah, I think I'm pretty clear about what I'm getting into right off the bat. So if I know that I'm writing for a blog who has super high editorial expectations and their content is just like top, top notch. I know what I'm signing up for. I know that it's going to be a lot of back and forth. And the editor kind of sets the stage for that up front too, in those initial conversations. So like in the case of copy hackers, if I pitch an article, I'd get feedback of like, okay, here's what our editorial process looks like. It's kind of a lot. It can be intimidating, but you're going to be really proud of it once you're done and it's going to perform really well. And people are going to even probably poach you from seeing your byline here and seeing like, wow, you can produce this quality of work. That's going to drive people to want to work with you. And so it is very much like a ethos builder, I think, as a writer.
0: Yeah, I think the expectation setting aspect of it is really important. I have had like going back to your initial question, which is what has my experience been with this? I have had similar experiences. When I work with a really, really great editor, it improves not just the piece that I'm working on, but like me in general as a writer. Like I think the best way to improve as a writer is to work collaboratively with an editor whose job it is to make something that's like pretty good, great, as you mentioned. I think that my struggles with it have been I think really great editors are few and far between. Oh, yeah. I think that, you know, when I look back, I can think of maybe a few, three editors, maybe that I'm like, wow, they, that, that really helped. That made a huge difference in the quality of the pieces that I was able to create. So I just, I don't think that these editors are that common. And I also think like, the expectation setting around it is huge. I have had clients where I typically offer one round of revisions. And if I say that to them and they either have a different editorial process or they know their standards are really high, or it's not, sometimes it's not even just high standards. It's just that they're very particular, right? Because I do Mm want to talk about sort of the nuances in this episode about like, what is high standards versus what is someone being nitpicky versus what is being particular? Like what's kind of reasonable, right? But I sometimes have clients that know that one round of revisions isn't going to work. And so they're like, hey, I really want to do three rounds of revisions for every piece, or I want to do two, or this is typically how I see the editing process going. A client that is kind of on top of it knows that. I think when you run into trouble is when they don't know that and you have like a too many cooks in the kitchen problem where you have like five editors commenting on your article, giving different feedback from each other and there's no real consensus. And I think the best kind of editor writer relationships are when it's kind of one-on-one, right? Yeah. So those are, so I'm curious about like your experiences with like bad editors or like really nitpicky clients where you're like, this is not helpful editing because I think that some people who who kind of nitpick like that think what they're doing is being a really good editor. So I'd love to hear what you kind of think the difference is.
1: Yeah. I think it's pretty clear to distinguish when someone's being nitpicky versus pushing you to take something that's already pretty good to that next level. And I think the difference is so the nitpicky people are the ones who are kind of picking at things that are easy fixes, like, like grammar, punctuation. Let's phrase this in a slightly different way that says it the exact same way, just with different words. The edits they ask for are kind of vague. They don't know exactly what they want, but they are just like, no, I don't like this. There's not a, a lot of clarity and specificity to their feedback. And so that for me is a big red flag. If I start seeing that, I'm like, oh boy, and that's when you send that feedback doc and you're like, okay, here's what good feedback looks like. Here's what bad feedback looks like. Now a really, really good editor on the other hand is very, very specific, not prescriptive. And I think that that's the difference. They're not telling you how to do it. They're asking you questions through their editing process that's saying like, does the reader know what this means? Or can we add context here that'll make this more easy to to understand and digest for a reader who maybe isn't super familiar with this topic. They're asking for very specific things here, or they're making recommendations, pointing to examples, talking about, here's a clear path to this next level of quality, rather than just saying, I don't like that, or let's tweak this. Let's, Let's shift this a little bit here. It's very, very, very specific.
0: Yeah, I would say one one word that used to always make me laugh when I got it back as an edit was like, make this more actionable. Uh, Ah, yes. Like, I don't know if people are saying this as much anymore, but at some point it was like a real buzzword in content marketing. Oh, yeah. Where people would be like, this tip needs to be actionable, which really meant like, this needs to be clear. And, give, and like, here's like, how to do it. Yeah. Here's how to do it. As opposed to something like really general, that like kind of generative AI could write, right? Like it's supposed to be like giving examples and stuff. But a lot of times I would be like, well, what do you mean in this instance to be more actionable? Like, can you give an example of what actionable would be here? I feel like I I remember getting drafts back that It was like, make it more actionable. And I just felt like that was like it almost was meaningless because I didn't know what they meant. And if I asked for examples, they would be like, I don't know. We don't have an example. Just like, make it more (laughs) actionable. Figure it out. Yeah. So I think like when an editor can also provide examples of like what their standards are or what they mean, that's also really helpful. I'm working with a client right now who I think has really, really high editorial standards. But one thing that I think is interesting is that I don't, I think there's a matter of taste at play and kind Mm -hmm. of style that comes into it where like a lot of his edits, I don't necessarily think it makes the piece dramatically better, but in order for it to be right in line with the brand voice, those edits make sense. If that makes sense. Say more. Yeah, say more. Like I just, Sometimes edits are like just a matter of taste. And I guess what I mean by that, I'm just trying to to like tease out what I think, is that somebody might like not really like using a certain word or they might really like to have shorter sentences or they're comfortable using kind of sentence fragments and things like this where that's sort of like not my taste. It's even like using the Oxford comma versus not, which is not really like an editorial thing, but it's kind of like, it's a taste thing sometimes.
1: Yeah. So it's like their brand voice, like getting it to align with how they personally write and sound on the page.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that is a really interesting exercise because you do, like if you're a a freelance writer writing for other brands and other people, you do want to flex your muscles and try and understand oh how can i embody someone's voice better or even just take that feedback and be like oh this feedback while the google doc is maybe like like has tons of comments these edits are actually really pretty small to just get it a little bit more in the brand voice and it's like i think sometimes as a writer i feel like i can only go so far in nailing the brand voice because i'm not like living and breathing the brand so it takes someone who is living the brand every day to kind of make those tweaks and adjustments. For many freelance writers, working alone can feel satisfying, except when it doesn't. Without a collaborator to share ideas and opinions, you may feel blocked. A survey on LinkedIn even revealed that 52% of writers struggle with being stuck. If you're one of them, book a session with Ivy Magic. Creative Director Jeannie Ivy's vast experience collaborating with writers can help you unlock your brightest, most effective work yet. Learn more at that slash collaboration. B2B is an absolutely fabulous niche. That's why Kaylee and I work in the space. Today's sponsor is the B2B Writing Institute which is run by Sarah Griesenbach, an incredibly talented former teacher turned freelance writer with 10 years experience in business-to-business writing. Sarah can teach you how to show, not sell, which means educating and explaining what you do rather than pushing sales. If you're interested in writing blogs, white papers, and case studies for B2B clients, even if you have no experience, head to b2britinginstitute.com and sign up for Sarah's email newsletter. I subscribe and I can tell you it'll make you laugh and make more money at the same time.
1: I think that that's a big part of this more intensive editorial process at large that I've experienced being on the writer side of the equation. So I would call that like the style and format edit. That would be like the second round of edits Mm -hmm. that a piece of content goes through. The first one would be content and context. So basically, is this as thorough as possible as it can be? Like, do we have lots of examples? Do we have storytelling? Do we have alignment as far as you define things for the readers? Everything is very clear. And then the final edit, and this is oftentimes a different person entirely with a different skill set and background is the SEO at it. So is it optimized for search? Is there aspects that you know, are going to help the post rank well and complement their pay-per-click efforts if that's something that they're doing. And so that can even be a third round of edits and is usually like a pretty quick pass through that they can handle in house. That's interesting. I don't
0: usually have an SEO get involved in that way.
1: I've only had a few do it and it's for pretty big companies who have the budget to say like, okay, now send this to our SEO person. They have a dedicated on staff or, you know, external person that reviews everything to make sure that it's very much aligned with the expensive like SEO efforts that they're doing, because that's not cheap, right? So if you're investing in content, you want to make sure that it's complementing all of your other very expensive efforts. So it's pretty rare, but I, I have seen that one. Yeah.
0: Okay. This is interesting, Kaylee, because it brings up like something that happens when you work with enterprise companies, which is that they have like really strict brand standards. So something that's happened to me that I like, not just the SEO, but these larger companies are more likely to bring in legal to review
1: things, Mm. right? They're
0: more like, right, because they need things to make sure like it's okay for them to say everything that they're going to say. They may have like just higher ups need to review it and sign off it. They may have more rounds of, edits because they need more eyes on it before it can leave the leave the or get published. So that's one thing that I've noticed for sure is that like the bigger and more established the company, the more likely you are to have kind of multiple rounds of edits um to really, really refine it to make sure it's in the brand voice and like legally, you know, really zipped up. Whereas if you work for an early stage startup or an individual, like legal's not reviewing that. There's not the same need for that it doesn't it's not as kind of like cumbersome of an editorial process now that doesn't mean that you're not creating great work or that whoever you're working for isn't a great editor it's just like a little bit leaner i would say just just based on the the company
1: yeah. And I think sometimes, even if it is a big company and they're doing that l- thorough of a review, sometimes the freelance writer is totally left out of that equation. You know, that, that stuff that they'll handle in-house. It just might be that when you see the final published draft, you're like, oh, that's slightly different. I wonder why. and it, And that could be what the reason was. So yeah, it's just one of those things. It's just, you know, assessing risk and making sure that they've covered all their bases, which is understandable. Yeah,
0: and, and I, do, I do think like when you encounter uh, an editor whose standards are really high, I think that if it's a surprise, that's maybe a time to be sort of concerned, like to say like, oh my gosh, there's like a lot of people involved in this or these edits are like really like there's so many of them and I didn't expect this at all. I think that is when it's kind of like, oh, this is a little bit out of alignment with what our expectations were. Whereas I think if you have, if you go into the process and the company is either sharing their editorial process or they're saying, "Mm, one or two rounds of revisions isn't going to be enough for us, or they're just very clear, like, hey, we have really high brand standards. I expect it to take a little while for you to get up to speed. Those are actually like good signs. And you, I think it's okay to price those kinds of projects accordingly, right? Like if somebody needs yeah. three or four rounds or revisions, and that's not typically what you offer, you can bump up the price a little bit to accommodate for the extra time. I mean, I do think there's circumstances like I can think of copy hackers. Like as I recall, those those blog, like I remember pitching them something long ago, and they came back, and like the rate for doing it was so low that I was like. Oh, this like this could be worth it for exposure and for like other reasons and they are paying me, but for how intensive this process is. like I don't have time to take this on right now. Um, and so I think you kind of have to decide, is working with an editor in this capacity going to be worth it to me? Is it worth the education to do this at this point in my career with my current workload? Or is it something that's maybe saved saved for another time?
1: Yeah, I remember, so when I wrote for Copyhackers, it was fairly early on in my freelance career when I was just kind of getting more established in the like software as a service space. And I felt like that was a really relevant place for me to be. And I kind of looked at it as a challenge. Like if I can write and get through this editing process, I can do anything, right? And I'm gonna learn so much from it yeah, I'm not going to make a lot of money, but like, I want to see if I can do it. And so if you're a writer who's trying to see like, I want to get insight on what a really intensive editorial process looks like and kind of climb inside the mind of a great editor and and see how they look at something and review it and learn from that process, you can kind of build it into your own writing practice. That can be really invaluable. But again, it's that cost benefit analysis of does this make sense for me right now? Do I have the time? do I have the emotional bandwidth to tolerate all of this feedback of like, fix this, fix that, fix this, fix that? Because it, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling to get a document back and to see like, wow, I thought this was really good. And it turns out it's just okay. <laughs> that's, that's hard to take.
0: Yeah. Or even just like, oh, I'm getting this back and we're going to take this to like a, a way higher standard. Right. And, and that's okay. And it's, it's, it's a good exercise to do that. And it is important to do that throughout your career. Um, and I think eventually, like, you want to be the kind of person that can can be that kind of editor should should you have the opportunity, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's very informative for, like, the writing process, I thought. I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot about, especially that context edit that I referenced, where it's like poking holes in a piece to make it really strong to make sure there's no stone left unturned. It's fun, it's engaging, it's it's checking all of the boxes. So, Tracy Wallace is another really great editor who does this really well and she's very good at going through and saying like I think we could I think we could use a little more of X here and here's why and really explaining why she's making the particular suggestions she's making, which again is super informative for the writer and helps you become a stronger writer overall. Yeah, absolutely. Another question I had for you is about like, have you ever had an experience where you've basically just gotten so far into the editing process, you understood that the the bar was set really high as, as far as quality goes, but you've had to just kind of throw in the towel and be like, okay, enough is enough. And like, how do you draw that line?
0: That's a good question. I haven't had that happen to me in a really long time. I don't know if it's just like better expectation setting or what but i honestly like have not that ha- i feel like that happened when i first started out that we'd go back and forth and back and forth i think eventually i would i what i recall doing is uh, like eventually emailing the client or picking up the phone and being like hey we've gone back and forth this many times like doing any more edits is out of scope cuz now i like i kind of learned my lesson right now i offer one round of revisions and i would say like Hey, this isn't benefiting you either, because we want to get this out the door. And the longer we spend going back and forth, like, it's like, you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of the good, you know, like, if you want to move fast and get stuff out the door, then you gotta at some point, throw in the towel. How about you? Like, do you feel like you've had those experiences?
1: I think it's been super rare too, but I think in those instances I've gone back and said I'm happy to continue iterating on this with you. I've shared the feedback document like I said about like here's here's helpful feedback versus non-helpful feedback. Again, just clarifying spe- like how to be more specific with the suggestions and comments that they're making. And I think I've also said like any edits past this point are going to be billed at x dollars an hour. And that's something I've put in my contracts now too is that, you know, past that one round of edits or two rounds of edits that's included in the rate, anything beyond that is billed at a predetermined rate. Just being very clear about that up front. Because again, it's something you, a lesson you learn really quickly once it happens.
0: Yeah, totally. It's a lesson you learn really quickly. I've done similar where I've said any additional revisions will be billed at X rate you know, on an hourly basis or something to sort of show them that, hey, we shouldn't really like go on and on doing these revisions. Um, I just wanted to ask you, and we can end on this probably, which is like, do you have a feedback doc? Uh, like a good feedback, bad feedback? I don't have such a doc. I know other writers do. And now I'm like, oh, listening to this, you talk about it. I'm like, maybe I should. Like, how do you... It. I know Sarah Griesenbach of B2B Writing Institute has one that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I have one. I have been meaning to get my new online like digital products up and listed for many years and it's in that to-do list pile. But yes, I have one and it's hopefully going to be out in the world soon, but I don't know. But it's, it's really simple. It's just like a one page. Here's what good feedback versus bad feedback looks like. So it's very clear. There's no ambiguity as far as Like, basically, don't leave me comments like this. This is not helpful. Here's what is helpful. Because sometimes people just don't know. They don't know what they don't know, right? They haven't ever been informed. Yeah, they have never been like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. The questions or the comments I was leaving before would be hard to act on because they're very unclear. You know, it's very open-ended. The more specific I can be, the better this is going to go for both of us. So, when
0: you send that, Kaylee, like, do you send that to them? Like, when you send over the first article
1: and you're like, hey, here's a helpful feedback doc, like, as you're going through this, you know, I used to, but I found that with the fact that I've been working with most of the people I work with for many years now, it's just not necessary. But if it ever comes up where I'm in a pinch and I'm like, oh man, this is getting into the danger zone, then I'll send it kind of as an anticipatory this might be helpful type of resource. Got so it. Got usually is it. so, just like a, a fallback. Yeah.
0: Got it. It's more like an as needed. Like if things come up and mm-hmm. you're like, this feedback isn't helpful, you can say, hey, like maybe check out this resource.
1: Yeah. Because we've talked about before, like you can have the best onboarding package and resource in the world, but that doesn't mean that people are going to read it. So I've just found like, I'm not even going to bother sending it unless it's truly necessary.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because as I was thinking about having one, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to add that into my onboarding process. Like it just starts to be too much.
1: Yeah. People's brains are so taxed these days. So I'm just like, keep it simple. Whatever the bare minimum is, let's keep it right at that level. So yeah, it can be, a, I think overall, it can be, a, this can be a great learning experience. Again, it's really depending on where you're at, what your bandwidth is, if you're up for a challenge or not. But Working with an editor who has really, really high editorial expectations for me has been one of the most helpful things I've done in my entire freelance career. Super challenging, very difficult, but outcome, I mean, paid dividends big time.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Freelance Writing Coach podcast.
0: If you want more tips, tricks, and resources for building your business, visit FreelanceWritingCoachPodcast.com.